Welcome to the podcast, The Caring Scientist, Mission Sustainable. This is the podcast where we discuss sustainability in science and we give you hands-on tips on how you can reduce the environmental impact of your lab work. Welcome to this fourth episode of our podcast on sustainability in science. I'm Nicolina. And I'm Adriana. And today we're going to talk about water, which is the most precious resource on this planet. Unfortunately, according to the UN, scarcity of water affects more than 40% of the global population and it's only expected to rise. Also, 3 out of 10 people actually lack access to safely managed drinking water. Maybe you don't have any local issues with water supplies where you live, but with a changing climate and therefore also changing demographics, this could actually change in the future. So how is water and labs actually connected and why is it important to consider water usage in the labs? Here's the reason. Laboratories consume massive amounts of water. In fact, academic lab buildings consume at least four times more water than office buildings. And maybe you don't realize it because you probably don't see most of the water that you use in the lab, but you're using much more water in the lab than you are at home. You are probably aware of the water that you use for preparing buffers, solutions, and to clean utensils but you're probably not aware of which pieces of equipment uses the most water. So that's why we want to present to you the top three offenders when it comes to water consumption in the lab. So we have the water condensers that are commonly used in chemistry labs to cool reactions. And you can get waterless condensers which perform the same task, but without the use of water. You can save thousands of liters each year and prevent also the risk of flooding your lab. So the next offender is when you produce a vacuum with water. Water vacuum aspirators need about nine liters of water per minute to work properly. And running them for just two hours will consume more than thousand liters of water. That's the daily water usage for 10 Danish people in just two hours. And the third top offender in labs are autoclaves. There are two types of autoclaves, the small benchtop autoclaves. They don't use a great deal of water, but the big ones, the steam jacketed autoclaves, are often the biggest water consumers in the lab. The way that these steam jacketed autoclaves use water is firstly it uses water to generate a steam to heat the unit in order to sterilize your equipment but then it uses water to cool down the steam so it can be discharged because if you don't do this the water pipes can melt however this process is extremely water consuming because it can take as much as 270 liters of water per sterilization cycle And it can be even more if your autoclave is, is an older model. I think autoclaves are really, I mean, that's really a topic that sort of also highlights the difficulties when going green. Because autoclaves are, of course, indispensable for biomedical research. And we need it for sterilizing a lot of things like utensils, regions and waste, of course. But we also shouldn't use it when we don't need it, right? So it's, it's not that we should stop using it, but we should stop using it when we don't need it. So, for example, if it doesn't have to be sterile, don't autoclave it. But, of course, never risk contaminations. I mean, if you end up not autoclaving something and you have to discard an experiment because of that, then that's really a waste of resources, both your time but also regions. 
Exactly. And this is, brings me again to the point of habits, as we discussed in previous episodes. There are so many things that we just automatically do. However, habits can be changed. Uh, since I'm working in the lab as a scientist, I also have a lot of habits and I know how difficult it can be sometimes to change them. Personally, for me, it makes a big difference knowing that my actions are greener and that my actions have an impact on the environment. That makes so much sense. I mean, unfortunately, not everybody is as green in their hearts as you are, but most people would actually like to make a green difference in the labs. They just maybe struggle with seeing how they can do it without compromising their work or their time. But most people would actually like to do these things. And that's also why we're discussing these things in a podcast, right? That we want to make it easier for people to see how their small actions can actually make a huge difference. And of course, I mean, one thing is that you personally start to think about what you autoclave, but you can also make structures that make it easier to reduce autoclaving. For example, if, if your lab alone isn't able to fill up the autoclave within a meaningful period of time, maybe you should start sharing your autoclave with other labs. And that can be maybe a little impractical and inconvenient, like how do you coordinate when you autoclave then? But I mean, you can totally find solutions to that. I know of labs who have these online sheets where people write when do they expect to start their autoclave and then people, other people from other labs know that they can use that autoclave for their stuff this week or whatever. So it doesn't always have to be a personal solution. It can also be a group solution or maybe even an institute solution. Another strong habit that most of us have had or are still having in the lab is that we keep using the same kind of water even though we may not need this specific kind of water. Maybe you're not aware, but there are different kinds of water in the lab. Um, there's, of course, the tap water. Then there's the ultra-pure water, which typically comes out of this little box that purifies the water. But there's also the deionized water, most often, that has this extra tap next to the normal tap at the sink. And it's really important that you know when to use what kind of water. I used to think that when you use ultra-pure water, You basically just have this one liter of tap water going into this blue box and then one liter of ultra-pure water would come out. But it turns out that some of these ultra-pure water purification boxes actually consume so much water to produce water. For some of these systems, they are pouring out eight liters of water in the drain every time you take two liters of the ultra-pure water. So for you, it feels like you're just consuming two liters of ultra-pure water, but in reality, you're actually consuming 10 liters. And that's why it's important to consider when do you really need the ultra-pure water. We've been talking now about the consumption of water, but one thing that we often don't think about is the disposal of wastewater and the mix of water with your reagent, um, because we just often pour it down the drain Often we also add something such as vircon, which aims to kill bacterial residues and viruses, but it actually has a big impact on aquatic life. So we also have a responsibility. And the comment that I often get about this is, as long as you dilute it well enough, it doesn't matter. And this is something that makes me cringe. Obviously, it depends from country to country and institution to institution, what you allow to pour down the drain. And if I'm unsure, I tend to ask the health and safety officer. But that is still very surprising to me. We are allowed to pour down the drain a lot of reagents that are harmful. So 
this is something that we also have to consider. It's not only the consumption of water, and it's also about how much do we pour down the drain. So what I do is I try to produce as little waste as possible so that I avoid pouring down the drain. So by adjusting actually how much of that reagent I need, I don't prepare more than I need. That's actually a really nice uh, way to both reduce how many regions you're consuming, but also to reduce um, the toxicity and the stuff you are letting out potentially to the environment. I mean, that's really when when green actions go into a higher synergy, right? Because you will reduce the amount of regions you need, and therefore also you will reduce how much money you spend, but you'll also do great things in terms of wastewater. I think something that makes it a little difficult to find out what you can pour in the sink and what not is science is a really international place to work. I mean, there are many nationalities and a lot of people have worked, have worked in many different places. So the rules really do differ from country to country or within the European Union and outside of the European Union and so on. And, and that can cause a lot of confusion that it's not, it's not one size fits all countries. It really isn't. And then that can really make make it difficult to have people doing the same thing in the lab. Some people assume that it's the same here as in Germany or in France or in the US, and then it turns out it's not. And I think it's really important that that we, we talk about it, uh, not that we have to have endless conversations about what to pour in the drain and what not, but, but for example, waste is something that we rarely talk about in the labs. We talk a lot about the science and the projects and the experiments and the results from the experiments, but we don't really talk about how we deal with solid and liquid waste. And that means that we also don't really catch it when it turns out that many people are doing it wrong. And uh, again, I don't think anybody means unwell. It can just be uh, difficult to to see what you can do and what you can't do when you enter a new lab in a new country, for example. So one way to also reduce how much bad stuff we're pouring into the drain would also be to actually give this introduction to people when they enter a lab. Like when they join a new lab, then make sure that they know how do we sort solid waste and how do we sort liquid waste and who should you ask if you are in doubt. Another thing could be to add, for example, a list of reagents that you're allowed to pour down the drain and hang that next to next to the sink. I really like the idea of a positive list. So instead of writing what you can't put in the drain, you write what can you put in the drain. That's, that's a good idea. And also another thing, and that's probably something that we will cover in another episode, but I recently actually found out about green chemistry and I wasn't really aware that it existed. So basically what green chemistry is about is it gives you the information about a chemical that is toxic and green chemistry is all about finding an alternative that works exactly the same way with a lower toxicity. And there are online databases that you can find out which reagents are less toxic. When you know it's greener, then you also feel better, right? It's not a nice feeling when you're pouring something in the drain that you know is harmful. I used to work in a DNA damage lab, right? So obviously we were using a lot of DNA damaging agents. That's how we tested what's going on in cells when they get DNA damage. That's by inducing DNA damage. And these things, those regions really shouldn't end up in the environment for obvious reasons. They are carcinogenic, of course. It's really important to keep these things in mind when you work in a lab that it's not the end of it when you pour it somewhere. It's going to go somewhere, actually. So this sort of brings us to the end of this episode of our podcast. The verdict for today is the following. Water is clearly essential to life and we do not have enough of it on this planet as it is and it's only becoming worse. 
So we really need to reconsider how we're using water, not just at home, but also in the lab. And maybe even especially in the lab, because we are using much more water in the lab than we are at home. So we have to take responsibility for this really precious resource. And it's not rocket science to make a difference when it comes to water in the lab. You can actually do this by taking very simple actions. And the actions are the following. Number one, get a waterless condenser for your lab. It really makes a difference. Second, get air pumps to create vacuum instead of using running water. Number three, get low flow aerators for your taps to reduce tap water flow from 18 liters per minute to under 7 liters per minute. Low flow aerators, you can just simply screw them on to the end of your tap and reduce flow without changing water pressure. It's an easy and cheap option that will significantly reduce water usage. Number four, check for water leaks and dripping taps and report them as soon as possible. Every drop counts. Number five, use the right kind of water. Don't go for the purest kind of water just because you can. Do you really need it? Number six, be a minimalist. Don't use more water than you need when rinsing and washing lab utensils. And lastly, we want to give you now five tips related to autoclaving. Don't run the autoclave unless it's full. Share it with other labs if your lab alone isn't able to fill it up within a meaningful period of time. Autoclave only when necessary. Install water-saving devices when possible. These can reduce water usage by 75 to 90%. If you are in need of a new autoclave, consider purchasing research-grade autoclaves that do not use the so-called steam jackets. And according to some studies, these newer models use 93% less water and also 81% less energy. A win-win situation, if you ask me. So thank you so much for listening today. We hope you uh, got inspired and we also really hope that you feel like taking uh, green actions in the lab related to water. And as always, feel free to reach out if you want to get in contact with us. We're very open to suggestions about future topics of this podcast. And also if you have any comments or questions, any feedback in general, you're very welcome to contact us. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get in touch, please feel free to email us at podcast at avasustain.com. That is podcast at avasustain.com. We have also put this email address and other useful links in the notes below this podcast. Till next time.